We are in the third of four weeks on what we're calling just rest and restoration. And in your insert this week, we have an insert that says practicing Sabbath. This, these are just ideas for constructively engaging in rest. So when we're talking about taking one day in seven, which is what we're encouraging you to do, we're not just talking about like not working, like binge watching the latest thing, right? So like there may be a place for that. I'm just saying that that's not necessarily restorative. We want to withdraw and then to engage in restorative action because we believe we are made in the image of a God who gives us this pattern in creation, which theologians call a creation ordinance. It's a picture of how we're made. We're, we're made in God's image. God worked six days and rested one, not because he was tired, but because he was entering into what we might call joyful contemplation of what he did. So six days, one day. Six days, one day. We are made in the image of a God who engages that way, and so we're encouraging each other to engage in that way. But today we're looking at kind of the answer to the question of how do you do that in such a chaotic world that brings such distress into our life all the time, that brings so many things that bring tension and restlessness into our life. That's just a reality in our world. How do we rest in the midst of that? In the winter, Carmen and I, my wife and I, love to sleep in a bedroom that is cold as possible. I don't know if you, you know, you like maybe you went, you've gone camping sometime in a really great sleeping bag and it's cold outside and you're warm in the sleeping bag and it's such good sleep. That works most of the time. So we open, we have two windows in our bedroom. We open up when we go to bed, let the cross breeze in. Normally I turn in the fan, it's blowing right on me. And it's always cold when you get in bed and almost always, right? It's fine because you, you warm up and your body heat and all that kind of stuff. But occasionally, it's just too cold for the blankets. And I remember one time this winter that it was probably one of the really cold days outside. Sometimes it gets down to like 34 in our bedroom. Uh, we have a, my, my alarm clock has a therm, uh, thermometer on it, or thermostat on it, whatever, thermometer. Um, and for some reason, we just didn't have enough blankets on. And it was like that sleep where you're like, I'm too cold, but it's colder outside the blanket, so I don't want to get up and get another blanket. And it's just this restless, you're tight, and you're tense, and you're miserable, and you sleep for like seven minutes and wake up, and you look at the clock like, oh, no. And you're cold, and you know that you should get up, husband, and serve your wife by getting a blanket. So Carmen eventually got out of bed and got the blanket. I wish I had, could say I did it, but I didn't do it. I'm just being honest with you. It's like 2.30 in the morning, and I was just miserable. She was just miserable. She, she went to our hall closet, got a big, thick blanket, and threw it on the bed. And I, I swear, I can remember my body when the moment that, that wave of the blanket hit the bed going, oh. you hear that? You remember that? Like that? Do you know that? Just like oh. an exhale and a deeper level of rest set in immediately. Oh. It was still the same temperature in the bedroom. It was still cold out. But that blanket then was a protective layer that brought a deeper level of comfort and rest. Psalm 46 that we're looking at this morning is a declaration by God to the people of God that he himself is a protective layer that if we're aware of, acknowledge, know, brings a deeper level of rest in a world that's otherwise very restless. The known presence of God 
brings rest in a restless world. And by known presence, I don't just mean like, oh, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. Is God in the room? Now, I'm not against, I'm for that, right? So like, and sometimes the people of God, because of the Spirit, God gives us a new sense, a spiritual sense. We call it sometimes a sixth sense by which we are sensate aware of God's presence. That is great, and I want to affirm that and ask for you to seek that from the Lord and ask for that. Some of us experience that in some ways, some of us that, experience that in different ways. I'm talking about that, but also, also the deep realization of who God is and who God is for his people. That's part of this known presence of God. The known presence of God brings rest in a restless world, and the, particularly we see in this passage rest from fear from stress, and maybe what we'll call striving. Fear, stress, and striving. And I, look, let's just be honest, we're not gonna be perfect. We're gonna, we're broken, we're broken people in a broken world. We still rest with all kinds of sin and idolatry and all these kind of things. Let's stipulate to that, right? It's not gonna be perfect, but I believe that as we take to our soul the content and the, the real heart of like what Psalm 46 would say, we do and can experience what theologian Francis Schaeffer called substantial psychological healing. So not perfect, not complete, but substantial, even in this life. Substantial freedom from fear. Substantial freedom from distress, stress, sorrow. Substantial freedom from striving and a deliverance into a stillness, both external and internal. And it's rooted in who God is and where he is. <laughs> who he is and where he is. Namely, where he is, he's with us. So the first thing here is you see, rest from fear. I put a, an, a quote in your insert from Dr. Frank Furetti. Furetti is a Hungarian sociologist who studies American phenomenon. Not coming from a spiritual perspective, I think he's an agnostic, but he... Uh, he writes this in his book, How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Ferretti, because, by the way, self-reported levels of fear and anxiety are increasing in America. They have been since they started measuring this in about 1960, 1962, just up every single year. Ferretti writes, why Americans fear more when they have far less to fear than in other moments in the past is a question that puzzles numerous scholars. Like, why is this? We have less to fear than ever before, and yet we're more fearful. One argument used to explain this paradox of a safe society, quote, unquote, paradox of a safe society, is that prosperity encourages people to become more risk and loss averse. So what he's saying is, translate it, the more you have, the more you're afraid of losing it. And we have more than any other time. It makes sense that we're more fearful of losing it than any other time. The more you have, the more we're afraid of losing it. The first thing we see here is an offer from God to rest from fear. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Selah is a musical notation in the Psalms, which probably means, hold on, rest, pause, wait. Reflect back on what you just sang. 
Selah. Reflect back on the reality that God is a very present help in trouble by being a refuge and a strength for us. So this psalm introduces us to one of the most disconcerting features about God. The most one of the most troublesome things about God for me and maybe for you is this. He is a very present help in trouble, but not by removing evil, chaos, and uncertainty, but by being present with us in evil, chaos, and uncertainty. That is discomforting. He is a very present help, not by removing hardship normally, but by being present with us in hardship always. Now, whether we're aware of that or not, it's a different story. But for his people, he is a refuge and a strength. And I want to point out that this does not say he gives us a refuge and a strength, as if it's a commodity that we sort of go get from the Lord and we go over here and we kind of use it by ourselves. No, he is a refuge and a strength. So uh, we experience that refuge and strength by being close to him. And that is what's being communicated. He himself is our refuge and our strength. We experience that by being close to him. This same one, by the way, if you remember last week, Taylor preached on Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You will learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the difference between Jesus in Matthew 11 and the Lord in Psalm 46? Don't answer, because if you say the difference, you'll say a heresy. It's, it's not. No difference, right? This is the same God. <laughs> now, the theologians would say that when we're, especially when you're looking at the Old Testament, unless something is clearly stated as the work of one person of the Trinity, we ascribe that to the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is our refuge and strength. We, on, on this side, understand that means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our refuge and strength. Jesus himself is strong refuge and strength and the one who treats us tenderly. He's not one-dimensional. This Jesus that we, could, we saw last week is tender toward us and moves toward us in our weakness. He's kind to us, is also refuge and strength who is re resolutely strong for us. Okay, what is being described here? The waters in the Bible, when you see waters in the Old Testament especially, it's often indicative of chaos and evil. And that's just God speaking in the language that people could understand, right? They, they were on the, the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. All kinds of storms, people going down all the time, right? It's indicative of chaos, evil, and destruction. It's kind of how it functions literally in the Old Testament. Mountains sliding into the sea. This is a picture of that which we, seems to be most stable and immovable to us becoming unstable and movable and even being consumed by, by chaos. Uh, and that word there, it says, in your translation, it says moved into the heart of the sea. It means slide. It's like they're just out of control. That which is immovable becoming movable. Right? It's the, it's the marriage that you thought would last forever that disintegrates. That's, what, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's the friendship that gets broken by betrayal. 
or the job that you knew you would work out forever and loved evaporating by merger and acquisition and movement. It's the stock market that returns positive gains year after year after year after year crash. That's what it is. It's the physical health that we never, we always just assumed we'd be healthy. And now you see it going away with no guarantee that it will ever return in yourself or maybe in somebody that you love. Mountains sliding into the heart of the sea. God is a refuge and strength in the middle of that for his people. I spent this Tuesday, uh, Thursday with a very good friend of mine, a dear friend, who's just a couple years older than I am, who in December lost his wife of 30 years to cancer. I can't imagine that. That would be like the most immovable thing in my life, sliding into the heart of the sea. What is God for my friend right now? He is a refuge and strength. He is present with him in it. And so when we see, like, when we see destruction, chaos, uncertainty, how do we respond? There are a lot of appropriate responses, right? We identify it. We may lament it. That's appropriate. We fight against it as we can. We resist it. If necessary and appropriate, we despise it, but we do not have to fear it. Because nothing bad happens? No, but because we're not alone. That's why we do not need to fear. And in it, even the mountain sliding into the heart of the sea, whatever that mountain is, we have one who is a refuge for us, who, who uh, a refuge protects us from the full exposure of something or a strength, one who gives us strength in it. That's why we don't need to fear because it, it cannot fully destroy us and God is present with us to give us strength to bear up under it. That's why we do not need to fear. And Christian, just think about this for a second. Our very existence in Christ is a sign that Jesus is utterly committed to this kind of safety. Because what is Jesus doing on the cross besides becoming a refuge for us? From what? From us. <laughs> From our own sin. Jesus on the cross is a refuge for us by protecting us from ourselves. A refuge from us, for us and from us at the same time. Because for humanity, the real thing out there that's seeking our destruction is in here. And Jesus is such a refuge. He's not just committed to removing that, but so deep it would remove this. Therefore, fear not. No need to fear. Rest from fear. Secondly, rest from, I, say, I put a stress here. It might be distress or sorrow. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad, make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Pause. Reflect back. Selah. So against the backdrop 
of everything stable and what we thought we knew and which was secure, sliding in the heart of evil and chaos, and all the world breaking loose around us, there's a river that flows undisturbed and undeterred, moving, 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 making glad the city of God. The historical city of God in the Old Testament was Jerusalem. By the time we get to the New Testament, we realize, oh, that was a symbolic placeholder that God was using to communicate about the whole church, the people of God in the world, moving forward in history. What's the river? There's no river in Jerusalem. But Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision in Ezekiel 47 of a, a stream that comes from under the temple that grows and grows and grows and waters the earth and gives life everywhere it touches. It's this picture of flowing grace, moving into the world, moving into history, giving life to everything it touches. Jesus picks up this metaphor in John 7 and says this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. So just put this all together here and... What is this? It's an Old Testament picture of God by his Holy Spirit moving to his people with renewing grace. It's almost a pressure, right? The, 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 the rivers. God doesn't force, but he just pressures. So what does that mean? This, this grace flows into our life, and as it comes, it brings freedom from distress. Why? Because it communicates to us he is our refuge and strength. And we have but to make ourselves available to it. We don't, we don't generate that river. It's there. It's flowing toward us right now for you. Like, and so we come and we say, Lord, I trust that you are here. I want to, and that's why we engage in singing and worship and confession and communion and preaching and praying. And then why you can do that on your own. He's always available. It, this, this river is in your midst. He's, it's a pressurized river. And he doesn't leave when it gets hard. A lot of people... And I, uh, he doesn't leave when it gets hard, but it makes us nervous a lot of times. Have you noticed how God tends to make us nervous? Like he just, his timing, not what I would suggest. But um, a lot of people think probably rightly the historical background to this is in 2 Kings 19. Um, I'm just going to assume that you don't have that committed to memory. So uh, this, is, uh, this is a picture of the Assyrian army, which is the largest, most brutal army in, in the world at that time. And they're on the marsh. They're chewing up every nation they come in contact with. They're destroying people. They're killing, raping, pillaging, and enslaving everywhere they go. And they roll into Israel, the promised land, and they lay siege to the capital of Jerusalem, the city of God which God is supposed to protect, and they're bigger and badder and stronger than the Israelite army, and the Israelites, they don't have any food, they don't, they're, they're, uh, they're limited in supplies, the city's laid siege, and they think they're going to die, and God says, I got you. Don't fear. But there's everything to fear. And they go to bed, and surely they think this is their last night. They can look out, and as far as they can see, there's an army that's stronger than them. And so I don't know if they sleep, but in the night, you can read the story. The angel of the Lord himself lays waste to the Assyrian army. The angel of the Lord, by the way, is probably a pre-incarnate, what we call a theophany of Jesus Christ himself, fighting on behalf of his people. He lays waste the Assyrian army. And the sun dawns, and what dawns on the people at the early morning 
is that evil has been vanquished. He will help her when morning dawns, is what the text says. And you might have noticed that this is actually a theme in the Bible. In the morning, it becomes clear that evil has been vanquished. God leads the people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's trying to kill them, and, his, and, and so God parts the sea through Moses, and the people of Israel go through into the, the desert. And Egypt, in their arrogance, follows in, bent on destruction of God's people. And in early morning, God shuts the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is vanquished in the sea early in the morning. Early in the morning, it becomes clear that the Assyrians are vanquished. The evil is vanquished. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb and the stone has been rolled away. And what becomes clear in the clear light of day is the evil of your sin and mine has been vanquished. He's committed to us, guys. Three things are certain in verse 6 and 7. The first thing is that the nations will rage. The nations will rage. Nations, those outside of those uh, uh, under the influence of God's covenant promises. Raging just means pushing against him. Like sometimes we get in, caught up in that. Totally get it. Individuals, groups, even countries, including the United States of America, right, is just a nation. You know, if you, every time we, you know, if you ever hear somebody praying, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You think about America, if you think that's America, that's just a theological error. <laughs> there is no Christian nation except God's people. There hasn't been in, in history since Pentecost. There won't be. Okay. Nations rage. That's what nations do in rebellion against God. Selfishness is going to continue. Violence, twisting good things, destruction, deception, power grabs, partiality, ethnic strife, suppression, oppression, everything. Just rage, rage, rage. Nations rage. That's what they do. Let's not be surprised. Let's not say, how can it be in 2021 we still have ethnic conflict? Nations rage. That's what nations do. I'm not saying we, we submit to it, but let's not be, and we do want to resist it, but let's not be surprised by it. Nations rage. And here's why. Something hasn't happened yet fully. This is the second thing. One day he will say a word and it will end. He utters his voice, the earth melts. One day God says no more and everything's, everything melts away like a refiner's fire would melt it away. Just like Jesus stilled the storm with one word. Stop. Actually, in the Greek, I promise you, it says shut up to the storm. It stops. He didn't need anything else. This is the authority of the one who is our refuge and strength. He gets the final word. And because he gets the final word, evil cannot fully and finally touch us. I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo and seen like a tiger behind a four-inch glass wall, right? That tiger looks dangerous. You might be scared of it, especially if you're a little kid. It's not dangerous. It can't actually get at you. It can't actually get at you. It thinks it can it thinks it's, it's very bad. But tigers are dumb, right? They're just cats, right? So, uh, so I'm not a cat person. But the, cats, the tigers think it's, gonna, it's scratching the glass as if it can get to you, right? The glass says this far and no farther. 
The one who is our refuge and strength says that all evil ultimately for us, this far and no farther. It can't ultimately destroy the people of God. And because Jesus gets the final word, the raging of evil is not a sign of our destruction. It's a sign of its destruction. It's raging against the one who gets the final word. So when, we're, when we see the chaos in this world, I mean, it's appropriate to fight against it, to pray against it, to work against it. But when you look at it, be reminded that its own rage is a sign of its destruction. Third thing, verse 7, certain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, the Lord of hosts, that's, um, we sang it in the mighty fortress. That means the Lord of armies or the Lord of angel armies. Okay? Um, there's a great passage in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm just going to read it for you. This is a, about the prophet Elisha and one of his servants. Uh, he is not the favorite. It's, again, this is Assyria, which is one of Israel's main enemies. Elisha kept giving wisdom to the king of Israel to evade the, the, the incursions of Assyria and the Assyrian king finds out where Elisha is and sends a group of soldiers to, to capture him and, and kill him. And so they surround this small city that Elisha and his, uh, his servant or his armor bearer or uh, co-worker is in. And this is what happens. Let me just read this to you. They wake up. Early, they wake up. When the servant of, God, of the man of God, of Elisha, rose early in the morning... And went out, behold, an army of Assyrians with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. Which is strange, because they were alone. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, this picture of an angelic army that then blinded the eyes of that group of Assyrians, and they went on their way. What this, the, God, the Lord of hosts, right, that's the, the covenant name of God, Lord of hosts for us means God saying, look, I am Lord of things you can't see. I am Lord of a power you do not understand. And then it says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. What does that mean? God of Jacob. Okay, so I realize that's just a phrase you hear in the Old Testament, and we hear it like, Bible word, Bible word, Bible word is our fortress, right? God of Jacob, God of Jacob. What does it mean to say God of Jacob? Okay, here's the summary on Jacob's life. He was a loser. Nothing in Jacob's life is commendable. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's fearful to the end of his life, and God said, that's my boy. What is this, what is this saying to us? Guys, what is this saying? I'm faithful to my people. I'm with them. Even when they distrust me, and fear and struggle to believe the promises I so clearly give them. I am with them. I am with you. The God of Jacob is your fortress. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Therefore, we can let that gladden your heart. Let it gladden your heart, city of God. Finally, rest from striving. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So you can imagine when they, that, that it, Jerusalem wakes up after the night of siege of the Assyrian army and they fearfully look over the top of that wall and they see, oh my goodness, just dead bodies as far as you can see, broken bows and shattered spears and just smoldering ruins of everything. What are they gonna say? Somebody's gonna run back and say, you gotta come and see this. Come behold what the Lord has done. He's worked desolations in the earth. Right? That's not how God always works, but sometimes he works that way. You gotta see this. And that little flex of his muscle, just the Assyrian army, is a sign that one day he actually will make war cease to the end of the earth. That day is not today. One day he will speak. And it will be done. This is our refuge and strength. Therefore, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Now you may have that on a, on a little refrigerator magnet. Be still and know that I am God. Da, da, da. You know, you're like, oh, is this an invitation to a quiet, contemplative life? Well, it may fuel a quiet and contemplative life, but what I want us to see first is it is a summons to the nations. All you at war with me, stop. Come and worship. And that is, then, it is a summons to his people. Relax. Relax. I am your shelter. I am your strength. I will be exalted in the earth. I am utterly committed to this. I will be exalted in the, among the nations. I'm, I'm with you. I'm completely committed to this. Completely committed to your ultimate safety. And we see that more clearly than the authors of this psalm did. Because we know something they didn't know. They knew an incredible desolation that had happened. But there was a desolation coming that would make that one look pitiful. When God himself, the Lord of angel armies, takes on flesh and is desolated on behalf of his people. So the evil that's outside of us and the evil that's inside of us doesn't destroy us and we're protected even from our own sin. The earth has never seen a desolation like that. I often think in that song, a mighty fortress is our God, one little word shall fell him. I think, what is that little word? I think... I don't know what Luther had in his head. I think it's the Greek word tetelestai, which means in English, it is finished. And when Jesus utters that on the cross, it is done. As Taylor said, the war is done. And now we're living with the effects of Jesus' completed work. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, just closing here, beyond being oriented rightly toward this, and we must be, 
We must be. That is the pathway of substantial psychological healing. Just if we could hold on to the fact that God is huge, he's amazing, he's big, and he's for us, and he's with us, but there's a freedom. Uh, I think how, the pathway into that, I just want to draw a couple things out of this text when we close here. Uh, this is, there's a communal holding on to this. It's not evident in the text so much, but it's like the, he is our fortress. It's a communal reality. Uh, it doesn't come through in the English, but like, be still and know I'm God. It's like, y'all be still. It's a plural, right? You all be still. It's, right? Second person plural. That's, that's what it's saying. To, to the community. So this picture of we hold it in community and we bring it to ourselves. A few years ago, we had an opportunity to go to the Redwood Forest in Northern California. And this is the most majestic, largest trees in the world, at least right now. The largest tree in the Redwood Forest is called the Hyperion. To get a sense of how tall Hyperion is, if you go down to the JW Marriott building downtown, the huge hotel, go to, go to the bottom, look up all the way to the top, and imagine a tree taller than that. It's taller than the Marriott building. It weighs probably 1.6 to 1.8 million pounds. This tree, a single tree. The strongest man in the world Hopthor Johansson deadlifts 1,105 pounds, which is amazing to me. But in order to lift that tree, you'd have to do it about 5,000 times. It's a big tree. So surely a tree that size must have, if 379 feet tall, must have roots that go 379 feet into the ground, right? No. About six to eight feet only. How does a tree that big and that heavy stand up with roots only six to eight feet under the ground? You never see redwoods growing by themselves. They grow in a redwood forest. Why? Because six to eight feet under the ground, the, tree of that, the roots of that tree are intermingled with the roots of another tree and another tree and another tree. And the roots of the redwood forest grow together, intermingle, interlock, and sometimes even fuse together. So these massive trees stand on their own, yes, but stand in an interdependent relationship with all these other trees that are standing on their own. So they're both standing and they're, they're holding others up. This is what it looks like to do this in community. I need you to say to me, Roger, the Lord is your refuge and strength, and you need me to say it back to you, and we need to hold each other up in community groups and in friend groups, and as part of what we do when we sing and everything. That's, we do it in community. And we take it to ourselves individually, but we, we do this in community together. We've already said, like, if we could take one day in seven, even just meditating, that the Lord is with us. What does that do for those other six days? This is a song, by the way, Psalm 46. It's a song meant to be sung. Perhaps we sing the song, sing the psalms into our soul. We pause. How do we know we're supposed to pause and reflect on them? In the psalm itself are three places that says, pause, stop here, go back to the beginning, reflect. Right? This is simple ways we bring the presence and awareness of God into our life. It doesn't make him more of a refuge and a strength, but it makes us more aware that he is. We repeat them. We memorize them. One thing we do on a routine basis in the New City community to communicate that God is both a refuge and strength and present with us is we come to the communion table. It's his communicating to us, I'm with you in a multisensory way, and I've been a refuge for you, from you. I'm completely committed. Taylor's going to lead us through communion. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you. You are a refuge and strength, gentle and lowly, high and holy for us. Help us to have our eyes opened like Elisha's servant to all you are for us, to recognize the things that are hard and chaotic and yet look at them and look at them with a new sense of fearlessness because we're not alone. 
as we come to the table now, deepen that reality in our own soul. In Jesus' name, amen.